0: Good morning. The reading this morning is taken from John chapter 21, starting at verse 15. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, Feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands. Someone else will dress you and lead you to where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumours spread amongst the believers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things and wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. This is the Word of the Lord. Gene Well,
1: as you've heard, we have crossed over from the Old Testament to the New Testament, from Malachi to Matthew, and this week's subject is the Gospels. I'm very tired. I still hadn't written this sermon on Thursday night when I went round Sylvia's about nine. I said, they'll know what the Gospels are about. Can I just say, there are four of them. They're about Jesus. I love him, let's worship. But apparently, apparently you want more than that, apparently. And there's now a big red clock at the back that counts down what a sinner I am if I go over the right length. So pray for me. Pray that we end up the right length on the Gospels. So let us indeed do that. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that the whole of this book is about you, but so much of who you are is expressed in the Gospels, and Lord, whether we're feeling nerdy or whether it's all over our head, it doesn't matter, Jesus, what matters is that we find you in the midst of it. So Lord, would you be fully present and speaking to hearts and minds today, I pray. Amen. So this is part nerd out lecture, part obsession with Jesus, but we'll see how it goes. Let's start with what the Gospels are not. Who remembers this delight from about 15 years ago Yeah, it was a book and then it was a film and the book was a fiction version of a non-fiction book that was very popular at the time that claimed a lot of hidden things, a lot of secret gospels, a lot of massive Catholic church conspiracy covering up. something that was small and not very powerful in in the sense that it thought that Jesus was not really God but he had a few secret words to let people know and he went off and married Mary Magdalene and they went to France and please can I just say this is all nonsense. It's very good TV but there is a time to not listen to conspiracy theories especially in this day and age and to trust the scholars on this one. But just so that you know, because I think it is important for our faith to have a grounding, what are they? What was this book talking about? Because there are a number of other Gospels other than the four that we accept in this book. But the reason why we don't say that these extra ones are anything to do with our faith is because generally they're a lot, lot later. They were written maybe in the 3rd century, the 4th century, after the church had decided what it was going to say about Jesus. But some people thought that's too easy just to call him Lord and Saviour and try and live like him. There's got to be some secret. There's got to be some strange thing that means that if we say the exact right magic words, almost like a formula, then that's what's going to get us to the heart of God. But actually, the heart of the gospel is simple and true. And so people wrote lots of extra theories like that about exactly what words were needed. There were some infancy gospels, which are kind of lovely and kind of mad. So Jesus does some great things to fill in those gaps between when he was born and when his ministry started. He made some birds out of clay, according to these gospels. He raised some little children up but he was also a psycho toddler who murdered people who disagreed with him. He was more like a magician or a superhero in these Gospels who couldn't control his powers, rather than the Jesus that we know and we meet in here. And there's also some extra collections, and I'm going to give you the scholarly term for what they're called. Okay, write this down, it's very important. They're bat nuts insane. Trust me, I've read the lot, so you don't have to. I've read every single one. They're bonkers. There's some stuff that sounds a bit like Jesus. So there's, for example, the Gospel of Thomas, if you've heard of that one. And it says things that do sound a little bit like what the Lord has to say in the Gospels that we know, like split a stone, split a piece of wood, and I am there, the kingdom of God is inside you. So we know probably, like with most things, there's an element of truth that line up with Jesus' original sayings. But then the rest of it is bat nuts. You're not missing anything, so do not be deceived. And when you will go through this, we'll look at the reasons for why we trust the four that we do have. And the main reason for that is their time, how early they are, how much we can trust them. So let's go into what the Gospels are rather than what the Gospels aren't. So when are we looking at, I'm sorry this is so small, but we're looking at the period between the green arrows. There wasn't really much written for about 300 years after the end of Malachi. Apart from the Apocrypha, which we talked about in the extra weeks, There's a very turbulent time for Jewish history and some of the books that the Catholic Church accepts in the middle came out of that. But our Bible and what we have then starts again with this huge flurry, as you would expect after Jesus came, of Jesus' books. And you're writing in that period between about 50 to about 100 AD. And this is when our books date from which can I say, as a previous textual scholar in my first degree, this is like a FedEx from heaven. You do not get books this close to the text surviving in any other genre. So here's total nerd out. I promise this is as nerdy as it gets. After that, we'll we'll de-nerd. But this is a list of classical authors. You don't need to look at the left-hand column. You don't need to know who they are. There are things like um, Plato, a philosopher, and lots of historians, Aristotle, another philosopher. Don't look at that column. Look at the third column and the fourth column, and to some extent, the fifth column. The earliest copy of when we have their surviving works. So you can see that in some cases, Uh, If you look about five up from the bottom, Aristotle's works, our first copies uh, are from 1100. Look at the Bible, our first copies are from 125. There's a time span that we have no information for the books, but we still trust what the classical authors have said, even though we've crossed a span of 1,000 years with someone like Tacitus. In the case of Paul's letters, we've crossed 25 years. That is nothing in historical book terms. And then if you look at the number of copies as well, we trust things on Catullus and Euripides at three or nine copies, and we have 24,000 of the Gospels. So this is our background for why we trust the four that we do have, and Paul's letters. And this is one of my favorite pieces of history. It's not a nerd out, it's just for you to look at. This is our earliest copy of anything in the New Testament, and it happens to be the Gospels. And it happens to be the Gospel of John. This is a a papyrus in Manchester in a library called the John Rylands Library. You can go and visit it. And it's a bit of uh, the trial before Pilate. And it dates to around 100 to 125. So it's not our first copy. Just in case anyone was wondering, we have no original originals but this is a first to maximum second copy of that. It is so early on that we have this, and the words haven't changed. What is here is exactly the same, apart from the fact that it's in Greek, as what is in here. Because I don't know if you've ever come across the opinion that Jesus was a great teacher, he was just conceived by the early church as a man, and he had a few words to say, and then later on, about the 12th century, the church decided to drop in the God bit, drop in the Lord bit, and that was the first time that anyone ever worshipped him as anything other than a man. That is wrong. It makes me very cross. Earlier than the Gospels are the letters, Paul's letters. The earliest one of those is probably around 50, 45 to 50 AD. And when he was writing that, look at Philippians 3 when we recently studied it. They're calling Jesus as Lord right at the start. So please don't let anyone say that they were altered later. There are tiny, tiny scribal changes. You get things like, do you remember in Mark's gospel, a name that is very close to my heart? He explains the meaning of something in Aramaic. So he writes, Jesus said, Talitha kum, and then he explains, that means, little girl, get up. Those are the sort of scribal additions we have to the text. But we're not talking about anything that changes the whole meaning of it. We're talking about little bits where it fell off the edge, or if there was a hole, or if a scribe had to use an abbreviation. But if you trust me as anything, as my previous job as an archaeologist and textual scholar, trust me, I'm a nerd about this stuff. And what you have in this is reliable and has survived across the centuries in the form in which it was written down. Are you nerded out? You are, And some, some nods, some, some sleep, but it is really important because I still come across these opinions that how do you trust what you have? Has the Bible been altered? So for example, in Islam, they will say that Jesus didn't really die, it was just a form of him that died, or he died a spiritual death, and interestingly, that's something that this book of bad gospels used to start to think about in the third century as well. But if you've got the tools to say, actually, our first texts from around 100 say that that's not the case, then you know that this hasn't been altered and is far older than the books of, say, Islam, which came about 500 or so years later. So trust in your texts and trust in your translations because they matter. And it matters to get it right, but you can rely on it. So, let's talk about the ones that we do have, and how they spread. So, I'm sorry if this is a little bit blurry, but here's a map of roughly where they were used. And there are some similarities, and there are some differences. But again, I've often heard that, oh, well, if there are four versions of something, that means it can't be true. No, if there's four versions of something, it means that something was so momentous, it was worth recording. And in an area where you, in an era where you didn't have the ability to know exactly what a person in Turkey was saying about it as versus a person in Rome, of course you wrote your own versions. And the, these Gospels date from a little bit later than the letters. You get the sense that Paul put out his letters and he had things to say to the churches and then they thought that Jesus was coming back very, very soon. You get that sense in some of the letters. But as the first believers started to die off, they said, hmm, okay, Jesus isn't coming back in the time span that we imagined. Let's make sure that we write down the history of everything that he did to make sure that it lasts for future generations, for our children, for everyone. And so the first you find is Mark. Mark. It's probably about 60 AD, and he was the base source. He traveled along with Peter, so he's got first-hand missionary experience. His is quite short. And then you've got Matthew and Luke, and they draw on him. You can tell that from the sources, so they were able to say, okay, this is a bit that he said, I've got this as a copy, but we also want to say this. We remember this story. We remember that story and we want to add in and tell you more about who Jesus is and what he did. And they wrote from very different perspectives. So Matthew writes from a Jewish perspective. He wants everyone to know that Jesus was the Messiah that was promised in the Jewish scriptures. And then you get Luke. Luke was a Gentile. So a non-Jew, typically he's called a doctor, he wrote Acts as well and he really wants to set down in a scientific way every single thing that he has heard about Jesus for the Gentiles. So they know, and he explains a lot more, and he comes at it from a slightly different angle. But the point is the same. How does it illustrate Jesus? And last of all, you get um, John. John was the last gospel, probably around 80. And you get the sense of John So this comes out of some thinking about what Jesus had to say as an old man. Tradition tells us he died as an old man. And a community formed around him. And I don't know if you've ever read John's gospel in this light, but think about it as sermons next time you read it, and you'll now see what I mean. Because you get much more extended teachings of Jesus, you get him explaining what communion is, what the I am statements are, And you can just imagine the junior members, the early community, sitting around his feet, watching the old apostle die, but so full of love and trust in the Savior that he walked with and still does in his heart as he shared these things. So he thinks much more about what it means to be a believer like we are today, to be believers in an era where we don't actually see Jesus face-to-face, walking amongst us. But what does it mean to have faith? And he jumps straight in. He doesn't go in with things like the Kings and the Christmas story. He jumps in with Jesus is the Word of God and who he is theologically and what he is at the beginning. And we're going to have a look at that person. I haven't forgotten that this was the reading. But you needed some, like, nerd to just, you know, be happy about why we love and trust this book. Did you also know that the reason we have books is pretty much due to Christianity? Because they needed to get this out to people quick enough. Because before, if you think about ancient texts, it was in scrolls and scrolls and you had to roll out the whole thing and it was very bulky and annoying to carry. And it wasn't just Christians, but Christians popularized this format so that they could read and read and retell and pass around stories of their saviour. And it spread around the Roman Empire because, do you know, I think God knew what he was doing, sending Jesus in 0 AD, because it was united. The Roman Empire did many bad things, it persecuted the Christians, but it gave the best platform for spreading this book that there could have been. Because the Romans had the best system for passing on things like letters that wasn't even replicated until the days of the stagecoats and trains. It got this message around a whole empire with no borders, with a shared language. Peter as a Roman citizen, Paul as a Roman citizen, was able to transfer that knowledge and to pass it on. So because of Christians, we have this book, and we trust it because of that history that I've shared with you. So let's dive into today's reading from the end of the Gospels, and what a powerful end it is. It's a beautiful end but it's also a very challenging end. So here's the point of it. The Bible is not about the Bible. You know when they say you get everything out that you need to in the title? Well, in this case, it's wrong. The Bible is not about the Bible. It is about him. It is about the person that you find in it. So here's what Jesus had to say a bit earlier on in John. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. So that was him rebuking the Pharisees and saying, don't keep reading it like this. Don't keep tearing it apart. Don't keep splitting hairs over tiny, tiny verses because this isn't journalism. This is theology. And not that theology saves, Jesus saves. Let's be very clear about that. But it speaks about him. And it reveals who he is. And if we're going to it to split hairs, if we're going to it to come with our own points that we think will get backed up, and we're not going to it to meet the face of Jesus, then we're doing it wrong. Because he is is the one that we meet in that pages. Because he is the one that bleeds love through every page, whether it's the Old Testament or the New Testament. And in this reading, I think it's so beautiful. Because often you hear this fact, I don't know if you've heard this one before, where it says, you know that I love you, you know that I love you, you know that I love you. And it's three times, because it's restoring Peter to the fact that he denied Jesus three times. It's his restoration, it's his forgiveness. But I think, you know, special revelation morning or something like that. I think Jesus just likes to be told, I love you, I love you, I love you. That's what the heart of all of this is about, all of the prayer room. It's not so we can tick a list on the bishop's mission order. It's so that you have more opportunities to say, I love you, I love you, I love you. If it was about forgiveness, I think that Jesus could have done it in one sentence. But that is what the heart of prayer is. I love the uh, Canadian author Sarah Bessie when she talks about her child coming home, drawing a picture from school about prayer. And all it was was the boy saying to Jesus, I love you, I love you, I love you. And Jesus saying back to the boy, I love you, I love you, I love you. That is the heart of our faith. Not that we can argue about the precise archaeology of the Gospels, although that's fun to do. Not that we don't want to talk about what the parables mean because we've got a faith that asks us to seek understanding. But what's the heart of it? I love you, I love you, I love you. And that's what he asked Peter to do. And then he has to do things like take care of his sheep and feed the lambs. But his calling is our calling. Are you saying to Jesus, I love you, I love you, I love you? It's an obsession. It's a healthy one, and it's the only healthy obsession in the world. But have you forgotten your first love? Because I don't think it's an accident that the Bible ends this way. The gospel section, sorry, ends this way. Reminding us of everything that has gone on with Jesus' life. But when John sat down at the end of his life, what did he want to draw out? And it wasn't the story from him, it was the story of another disciple. I love you, I love you, I love you. But it didn't end there. It got rather tougher. Did you notice this bit of the passage? Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Follow me. If you had just been told, as Simon Peter had that the cost of Jesus' touch in your life, the cost of Jesus' work in your life was that you would be put to death, how would you answer that, follow me? That is a very, very hard question to answer. And I don't even care if this comes across as a rant, but what would you answer? What would you do? Because he loves you with an overwhelming passion. He died for you. And yet some of us feel like it's an effort to get out of Sunday bed in the morning to worship him. Some of us feel like it's an effort to be bold enough to say that we even believe in him with our friends and families. Some of us feel that it's an effort to even make it to church one in four. And not that it's about church, but here is the place that we worship him. He died for you. And Peter paid the ultimate price as well. And he still said yes to that call to follow me, even when it cost everything. And one of our prayer room activities was planting a bulb and soil to represent where we need to die to ourselves, whether it be our image that we don't want to let go, whether it be unforgiveness, whether it be the sense of control over our own lives. But Jesus demands every single bit of it. The reward is him, And there is no better reward in the universe. But you have to let yourself die to what you want to do. And those bulbs that we have planted will come back in his time because it comes from that verse, again in John, that says, unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, it won't then bear much fruit. Do you want to bear fruit in your relationship with Jesus? Then there are things that you need to let die Because your love for him is bigger than any other thing in the universe. And it's interesting that he did choose to end focusing on another disciple. Because I don't think that we should ever consider anyone else's calling to be ours. So don't look around you and don't say, Oh, well, I could never do that because I'm not called by the Lord for that. Or I could never do that because I'm not called for the Lord for that. But what is he calling you to? Because Peter says, when Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? And how often do we do that? What about him? What about her? She could do it. She could serve. But as for me, I'm not sure. Be like Peter in this, how he answered. That out of his great and amazing love for the person of Jesus that he found in these gospels, who is worthy of everything that he gave it all up so I hope that when you read your gospels read them for information read them in a sense of trust out of who he is and the historical nature of it but most of all read the gospels to meet him meet the one who will change your life because he's already done it on the cross and with his resurrection that is the one that we all want to meet when we read let's pray Lord, we give you our whole lives knowing that the reward is you. There is nothing better. There is no one worth living for other than you. And Jesus, we give you our love because Jesus, it was your overwhelming love that brought you to this earth to walk it, to live it, to die in it and to be resurrected in it. And Lord, would you teach us to be like the disciples at the end of these Gospels, who just turn and look to you in love, who say yes to whatever the cost, to whatever the calling is. And Lord, we choose to die to ourselves. And we choose to place our hearts and our lives in your hands as the only worthy one. Jesus, you are worthy of all our praise and all our worship. Thank you for these great records that we have. But Lord, meeting you in the midst of them is more precious than gold. Amen.